Hello, free thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to Post Woke, the New York City-based podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense. Hey, I have yet another must-listen essential interview for you this episode with Dr. David Carpenter. But before we get to that, I just want to quickly explain that there are points in the second half of our interview where my voice seems to echo in the background. It doesn't impact the listening experience, but it's less than ideal. And then when we get all the way to the end of the interview, it dramatically cut off. But it, I didn't get a chance to end with the niceties that I normally would for any guest that's kind enough to appear on the show. But I must say that the um, the podcast platform chose an excellent point to just cut off. So I just wanted to acknowledge that up front. And let's get to Dr. David Carpenter now. Okay, I'm here with Dr. David Carpenter. David, welcome to Post Woke. Thank you very much, Mickey. It's a pleasure to have you here. Um, I want for myself and the audience to just benefit from your expertise. And I'm going to give you this intro and then let you take it where you want to go. Um, obviously, there's a lot of uh, attention paid when something very high profile happens, like a school shooting. And it's very serious and should be taken seriously. But there are other threats, more insidious, very rarely talked about, and threats that go on 365 days a year for kids in school. And this is the type of work that you've done studying, exploring, researching, and exposing. So what can you tell us that we really need to know? Well, what I've been very much involved in recently is uh, old school buildings that have PCBs, polychlorinated biphenols, things that weren't manufactured after about 1978. But they're still present in old buildings. And they're very dangerous chemicals. Uh, they reduce IQ. They cause a reduced attention span. And how can you learn anything if you can't pay attention? Mm. They're known human carcinogens. They have a whole variety of other adverse health effects related to dis chronic diseases like diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, things like that. <laughs> and the problem is that back in the days when PCBs were widely used and their toxicity was not appreciated, they were commonly placed in schools as the solvents for the caulk that was put around the windows and doors, and also as the ballast in the old fluorescent light bulbs. Mm. Well, now, those PCBs in the ballast were supposed to have a lifespan of a, less than 15 years. But the problem we have with schools, and actually a number of other older buildings, is that uh, they never have enough money. And especially schools in poorer areas, uh, they didn't replace these ballasts in the fluorescent light bulbs until they died. And the result was that the, the ballasts would leak PCBs. We had a case in New York City in the school where 
a student had pure PCBs falling on her head during wow. her classroom. Uh, they also volatilize off of the caulk. Now, PCBs are an oil, uh, so they're not terribly volatile. We call them semi-volatile substances. But they slowly volatilize. And if you have caulk on the inside of a room, it's, it slowly goes into the air. When you have a ballast that leaks, especially because of the temperature, it goes into the air. It volatilizes. Okay. And everybody in that classroom is going to be breathing in PCBs. Wow. That's well, going to result in reduced attention span, reduced ability to learn and memory and memorize, and increased risk of all these other diseases when you get older, including cancer. So it's not a trivial matter. Not at all. So now, can I interrupt you a second? You, just two quick things. You mentioned that the date, the date 1978. Am I correct in saying that prior to that, PCBs were quote unquote legal, but then after that, they couldn't be included in construction in a building, but they weren't removed from buildings that they had previously been used. That is absolutely correct. Okay. Now, the PCBs in the U.S., almost without exception, were manufactured by Monsanto. Of course. In uh, 1972, there was already so much evidence that PCBs were escaping into the environment that Monsanto voluntarily stopped putting PCBs in caulk. They did not stop putting PCBs in ballasts, in transformers, in capacitors, because those were considered to be closed uses. The Toxic Substance Control Act in the late 1970s specifically outlawed manufacture of PCBs. And it was one of the few chemicals that was specifically outlawed at that time. Okay. But what it did not do was require that all PCB containing uh, things that were closed, like transformers, capacitors, uh, ballasts, and fluorescent light bulbs, be replaced. And that's why in especially less affluent schools, and in many old buildings, these compounds are still there. And they're slowly volatilizing. And anybody in the building is going to be inhaling them and uh, getting excessive exposure to things that are really dangerous compounds. Now, in New York City, what this was probably almost 10 years ago now, it was uh, during the Koch administration, uh, it was found one parent discovered the PCBs in the caulk and got very concerned about the health of his children. Uh, it triggered an investigation. And of there's something like seven or 800 schools in New York City, 600 mm -hmm. of them had PCB-containing caulk Whoa. and PCB-containing ballots. And there was a, a lot of negotiating between the city government and EPA on the time frame for getting rid of these things. One thing that happened was they first remediated the caulk in some schools and found there were still PCBs in the air. Then they discovered the PCBs in the ballast. Okay. And uh, so it took something, there was finally an agreement that over a period of three years, all of these ballasts and the old fluorescent light bulbs would be removed. Uh, the caulk was never 
totally removed. The problem is remediation of this stuff is expensive. Uh, it's expensive to measure PCBs. Uh, there's another ridiculous thing. Uh, EPA has a national standard that if you have PCBs in materials like caulk around windows uh, that exceeds 50 parts per million, you must remediate it. But if you suspect you have PCB containing caulk around your windows and you never measure it so you never know for certain, then you don't have to do anything. Holy shit. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> so I was involved in a situation in Malibu, California, where, again, parents uh, became concerned about this PCB caulk. They had to sneak into the school to get samples of it, to measure it. And they were actually accused of, of uh, what's the word? Of trespassing? Trespassing, yes. <laughs> and then when they, when they analyzed the caulk that was taken from several schools, they, from several rooms, there was a situation where they took a caulk from one room, not from the next one, but from the next one. The first and the last room had very high levels of PCBs but the school didn't want to mediate the room in between because it wasn't measured. So, you know, now the problem is that PCBs in caulk doesn't stay just in the caulk or even in the air. It will migrate into the masonry around the caulk. So remediating this is, is very, very expensive because often you have to take away the brickwork or whatever masonry you have as well. And, that becomes hazardous waste that has to go to a secure landfill. So you, in some cases, uh, people have actually ended up closing schools and building a new one rather than try to fix it, an old building. But of course, now the, the concern that I have, I think the school is the most serious place because that's where kids go to learn. Absolutely. But it isn't just schools, it's every old building that hasn't been maintained up to current standards. So it isn't just the kids in school, it's all of us that live in an old house, work in an old office, uh, live in an old apartment building. Uh, it's very likely that these things are a problem there as well. Uh, wow. And again, we don't have federal standards that really require uh, public health investment in remediating these old buildings. And it's not even, it, it's not even on the radar of the average person. And it, uh, of course the corporate media doesn't report it unless a dramatic story happens like parents allegedly trespassing to help their children's health. And so it's, it must be so frustrating for you to be doing this research and to be acutely aware of what the you know they say the price is too high to remediate it. Well, what's how what price can you put on children's IQs being like permanently damaged? It, it's 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 uh, incredibly frustrating, and I would imagine that it's a combination of corporate power and political compliance keeping these um, rules or not even rules, just keeping everything on uh, under the radar enough that nobody even wants to talk about it. And we we we've only you've only talked about PCBs. I mean. The, 
um, before we um, went on the air, we were talking. We mentioned pesticides, and I've heard you on other podcasts talk about phthalates. Is that am I pronouncing that correctly? Phthalates? Yes, that's correct. And, yeah, it's a very yes. very challenging spelling to that word. So, um, I would be curious to have you um, sort of freelance into other man-made chemicals uh, that are threatening children, of course, but like you said, all of us, and and how. In, like how um, common they are, you know, the products in which they're found and how yeah. difficult they are to, to avoid. Well, you mentioned phthalates, so let me start with okay. phthalates. Uh, there are so many chemicals of concern. They're the uh, brominated flame retardants that are in our upholstery and so forth. They're very similar to PCBs. Uh, phthalates in bisphenol A are chemicals that are added to plastic. And they make either the plastic hard or they make the plastic soft. Okay. And, you know, plastic is just such a part of the life of every day, every person anywhere in the world. Uh, now, what we understand now is that phthalates and bisphenol A and a number of other chemicals, actually including PCBs, although they're not perhaps as dangerous in this regard as the phthalates, but they are weak estrogen-like chemicals. They activate the estrogen receptor. And, you know, the difference between boys and girls, men and women, is the balance between the male sex hormones, testosterone, we normally call them androgens, and the female sex hormones, which are estrogens. Okay. And the evidence now is very clear that if a male child is born to a mother that has excessive exposure to phthalates, they have a whole series of abnormalities about their reproductive system. Uh, the most dramatic thing is probably what's called the anal genital distance. In mice and, and rats, the distance between the anus and the genitals is much larger in males than it is in females. And that's true, in fact, for almost every animal. Uh, take, for example, dog, where it's dramatically different. Okay. But it's been shown in mice and rats that if you give phthalates and other of these estrogenic chemicals, that the males are born with this, uh, an anal genital distance that's more like females. Now, not only that, more recent work, uh, and I gather you've already talked to Shauna Swan, who's done a lot of this work, which is just fantastic. Uh, when, when these guys grow up, they have small genitals, they have reduced sperm count. And of course, there's a big question about how this influences things like sexual orientation. That's such a hot topic that nobody's really grappled with it. Yeah. But it's very clear that estrogenic chemicals in our diet uh, interfere with reproductive function. Now, there are other series of chemicals that are either androgenic or anti-androgenic. And anti-androgenic anti is basically the, the same as being estrogenic because it's this balance between male and female sex hormones that determines our body shape, our body size, our reproductive capability. 
uh, there was uh, uh, this old story of of this no uh, of uh, uh, I'm blocking on the term. There was a drug that was given to many people, many women, to reduce the chance of miscarriage back in the 50s and 60s. That was an estrogenic compound that caused major birth defects in in uh, girls that were born to mothers that had taken this. Is that thalidomide? No, it's not thalidomide. Uh, it's a okay. I, I, I kind of <laughs> I I, I, it's I something could... I know very well, but I'm just blocking. Okay. It right now. Uh, but you see, the point is that if you have chemicals that alter sex hormones during development, the child is most vulnerable to alteration that may be lifelong changes uh, during that period of time when their their body, their reproductive organs, and their brain is developing. Now, this is also relevant to PCBs and other chemicals that interfere with cognition, lead being the one that's most studied, PCBs do effectively everything that lead does, but then they do a whole variety of other things like causing cancer. But so is, it, is it fair to say PCBs without being super spe specific are as serious a problem as lead? Because everyone knows about lead, but PCBs are as bad for humans as lead. I think PCBs are worse. Worse, okay. Well, uh, lead. Lead certainly has very dangerous effects on cognition and IQ. Lead is not known to be a carcinogen. Uh, lead may increase your blood pressure, but probably not as much as PCBs do. PCBs are carcinogens. They reduce IQ and memory. Uh, the problem is they haven't been studied nearly as much because analysis is so expensive. And... You know, I, I really blame CDC. They know that PCBs are terrible. Uh, so they talk about lead as one of the great success stories and don't talk about other chemicals for which CDC or the federal government have really done very much. Now, I do understand that uh, trying to remove PCBs from the environment is extremely difficult. Uh, we've done reasonably well at removing lead from the environment. But uh, PCBs are persistent, as is lead. Uh, unfortunately, they are now widely distributed in our food supply. You can't eat a Big Mac without getting some PCBs. You got PCBs in your eggs, in your butter. They're in all animal fats. And one of the interesting things that I heard on a, while I was serving on a National Academy of Sciences panel is that uh, after there was this, well, it used to be that when a, a, a cow or steer was butchered, all the waste animal fat got put into animal feed. Well, the PCBs were in the fat. So that was just recycling the PCBs. Now, after there was a big scare about mad cow disease, yes. especially in Canada, we stopped putting the cattle fat into cattle food, so we put it in the chicken food, in the in the pig food, and put the the pig fat and the chicken fat in the cow food. But the PCBs were in all of these fats. It didn't matter which animal. So the result is that all the, the animal fat that we would buy every day at the supermarket contains some level of PCBs. 
And once you have them in your body, they stay there for a long time. Wow. Uh, wow. The uh, PCBs are really a mixture of 209 different chemicals. And they vary depending on how many chlorines they have around this biphenyl ring. Uh, the, the, the PCBs with relatively few chlorines are much more volatile. Those are the ones we have concern about in the schools. The PCBs with more chlorines, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, they're not so volatile, and but they're more persistent. So they're the ones we find in uh, animal fats that are part of all of our diet. But now we are beginning to understand that inhalation of PCBs is as important, maybe even more important than uh, the fact that we're consuming PCBs in these animal fats in our diet. Wow. Just because something is persistent doesn't necessarily mean that it's more dangerous than something you breathe in. The other thing about the lower chlorinated PCBs is they don't stay in the body as long as those with more chlorines. So uh, when you take a blood sample, you get a selective concentration of those more persistent conjures. But if you're in a school or in a home, and I recently just published a paper where we went into a home in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, which has a major general electric uh, PCB contaminated issue. We took air measurements in the basement in the living room, and then we took blood measurements the same day in the people. We found this enormous number of lower chlorinated PCBs in the air, in the living room, and in the basement, but most of them were not detectable in the blood. Well, so these people were breathing these in constantly when they're in the home. Uh, and the PCBs can have their harmful effects, even though they don't hang around very long. Okay. So it's different because they're inhaling it. That's correct. Okay. I want to, now I want to come back to phthalates in a second, because I detoured you into the PCB with the lead question, but <laughs> it's, um, so when, when you say that you believe PCBs are worse, could, is that partially because it is this toxic man-made brew as opposed to lead being something that that is more like exists in nature and it's more it's its impact is is a uh, less intense or less varied because PCBs themselves are so varied like you said there's so many different kinds and then they're going to impact us in so many different ways that it's it, it's difficult to pinpoint. Well, lead. I remember I'm, I'm in New York City. I'm, that's where I'm talking to you from now. I can remember being younger, and there was a lot of news stories about peeling paint in old buildings and the danger of lead because lead was in the paint. And so we knew about that, and it seemed very much cause and effect, and remove the lead, and then the damage was less uh, prevalent. But with PCBs, as you're saying, what I'm hearing you say, it, it's that it's it's so much harder to control it because it's it's, it's everywhere in so many different forms, and nobody talks about it. That's absolutely right. You have it absolutely right. Okay. Uh, I do think that PCBs are more dangerous than lead, uh, not because they have different effects on the nervous system. I think those are about the same. But PCBs do all of these other things, the increased risk of cancer, of diabetes, of high blood pressure, things that we've documented very 
convincingly over the years. Uh, and, you know, because there's been so much information about lead, almost everybody's aware of it. We have regulations, so you can't sell a house unless you confirm that it's not lead contaminated. Uh, nobody even thinks about doing that for PCB. Yeah. Uh, so it's a real problem. All right, so I want to I want to come back with tie this together, but with the phthalates, um, phthalates, when you were talking about the impact, particularly on on male children, um, so in other words, women who are exposed to phthalates during pregnancy could then give birth to male children who have these um, issues with sexual development that will continue later into life, and even possibly we don't know for sure, but could, could contribute to a, um, a, almost like a feminization of the, of the boys because of this, these estrogen-like chemicals in the body of the pregnant woman. Did I get that correctly? You have that absolutely correct. Now, let me talk about a little bit about where phthalates are found. Okay. Phthalates are found in lots of personal care products, uh, shampoos, conditioners, lotions, cosmetics, lipstick. Uh, they're added to all kinds of chemicals as well as being in plastics. Now, if you put a plastic dish in the microwave, the phthalates are released. They get into the food. So the studies that have been done with phthalate exposure, uh, phthalates, unlike PCBs, don't stay in the body very long at all. They're usually excreted in a day or two. But you can monitor the metabolites of phthalates in urine. And so the studies that have been done to follow the kids born to women that uh, are exposed to phthalates usually entail urine analyses at multiple times during pregnancy. And you find some women highly exposed, other women less exposed. Nobody is unexposed. And that's the, the basis of finding uh, these associations of male children born to women that had high phthalates in their urine over the course of their pregnancy. Now, again, it's a problem we have with uh, PCBs to a lesser degree now with lead, but you don't have anybody that's unexposed. Jeez. There really isn't anybody that, that uh, uh, doesn't have a little bit of lead in their body. There's certainly nobody that doesn't have any PCBs in their body. And uh, given our, our environment, our food supply, our personal care products, there's just nobody that isn't exposed to phthalates. So when you are comparing less exposed to higher exposed, you're almost certainly underestimating the magnitude of the risk. And this is a real concern for those of us in the public health community. Uh, we've let this genie out of the box. We think chemicals are a good thing. They're convenient. They're uh, not viewed as being harmful. There's no public announcement saying, you know, go easy on the cosmetics. Look to see what's in the cosmetics because some phthalates are worse than others. And so the public is just unaware of this. Now, <laughs> you know, the, the thing about uh, sexual identity, that gets people's attention. Anytime you talk about sex, that gives people attention. Sure. But it's uh, it's not just 
the effects on sex hormones. It's the effects on uh, risk of developing breast cancer. Uh, estrogen, the female sex hormone, is a major risk factor for breast cancer. So estrogenic chemicals, whether it be phthalates or PCBs or bisphenol A, uh, are almost certainly elevated risk factors for breast cancer. The, the definitive studies have really not been done because for phthalates and bisphenol A, you have to have these multiple risks, multiple urine samples over a long period of time. And the latency for breast cancer after environmental exposure is a long time. So it's just not realistic to document that firmly. But we know that estrogen itself is a major risk factor for breast cancer. And therefore, it just follows that these estrogenic chemicals also are going to increase the risk of breast cancer. Wow. So the, so the corporations responsible for these um, chemicals could could step up and say, we're going to do some studies or we're going to reduce the amount of them. But there's really very little history of them ever doing that until they are forced. For example, when, you, when you're talking about before, when you said there's no TV commercials telling us to look for phthalates in, in, um, you know, in the ingredient list, just think how long it took for people to recognize what's in cigarettes, right? Like that, that, battle, that battle went on for so long. So, so would, would it be fair to say that the work you do, you find yourself constantly banging your head against a wall that's made up of sort of corporate money funding politicians and lobbyists where it's just like they're, they're not, they don't want you to dig too deep because they know what they're doing. Well, that's absolutely the case. Now, you know, a corporation that manufactures a chemical has to get approval through EPA uh, and they have to do a variety of tests to determine whether or not it's safe. Uh, there should be no liability for a company that does those tests and doesn't find problems. There should be absolute liability for a company that knows their product is dangerous and does nothing. I've been involved in a number of cases. Uh, we've already mentioned some of the school cases, but other cases uh, concerning Monsanto and their knowledge of how dangerous PCBs were. And they hid that in order to make a lot of money. Uh, I've been recently involved in a school in Washington state where uh, three teachers became ill because of the PCBs and the ballast and the caulk. And uh, at a jury trial, uh, Monsanto lost against these four teachers to the tune of $165 million. Hmm. Uh, and the evidence was Monsanto knew these were dangerous, and yet they did nothing, and they continued to sell it and make a lot of money. And the business of making a lot of money had priority over protecting human health. Now, mm -hmm. there are a variety of chemical companies. You know, chemistry does make our life easier, but it, when it harms our health, that's a serious problem. And... Uh, those chemical companies must be liable. So let me ask, so let you, me ask you, when you say, when you say as long as the um, companies are doing the testing, they can't be liable, but who is doing the testing? And is the, if it is the company themselves, 
what type of oversight, like what would stop Monsanto from shaping a test of PCBs that gives the result that they want, being that they're craven enough to, as you just said, to 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 um, um, put profits put ahead of the health of, of their um, customers? Well, uh, the issue in the legal cases against Monsanto uh, is that when uh, internal documents were obtained, it became very apparent that Monsanto knew way back when that uh, these chemicals were toxic and yet did not provide that information to the public, to people that bought PCBs from them. And, and therefore, they were, they were covering up information that uh, should have been provided to the whole public. Now, it's true that you know, EPA doesn't have the resources to do a lot of independent testing. So when a new chemical comes on the market, it's usually the manufacturer that, that does the testing and then reports that to EPA. Only in exceptional circumstances, uh, I think the evidence was that we have something like 86,000 chemicals that are approved and only 200 of them have ever been carefully analyzed by EPA because they don't have the resources to do it. So this is a problem for many things. And, you know, new chemicals come on the market all the time, often without adequate testing to see whether they cause cancer, whether they cause IQ de deficits, whether they cause other diseases. And uh, most people trust our government to protect them. Uh, unfortunately, the the resources available to the government to really do that rigorously are inadequate. Wow. So what, I mean, you've been in this field a long time. You have a lot of, of awareness of the damage being done. Is there anything, um, this is kind of a two-parter. Is there anything that in your work that makes you feel optimistic, optimistic that we are taking good steps? And is there anything that you would suggest to people listening that they can do either as a lifestyle choice to, to try and avoid some of the products that you mentioned or some of the food choices that you mentioned, or is there, it, or should our focus be more on exposing the corporations who are exploiting the fact that only 200 uh, out of 86,000 chemicals actually get rigorous testing? And is that something that we should be demanding from the government that that's where some money be allocated to to do better testing or all of the above. So basically, what makes you feel optimistic that this can be tackled and and improved from what you know? And what can we everyday people do to um, contribute to that? Well, I'm not sure that I am very optimistic. Uh, I mean, we can point to successes and the story of lead is a good example. Uh, we used to have lead in, in gasoline. Uh, that stopped back in early 80s. We used to have lead in paint. That's stopped. And we've really made major progress in reducing the lead concentration in the average American. Uh, with PCBs, we've made almost no progress. I mean, the levels are going down after manufacture stopped. But with PCBs in all of our food products, uh, everybody is exposed. Now, uh, one can do something there by reducing your consumption of animal fats uh, because the PCBs are in the animal fat. And that's good for cardiovascular disease as well. Mm -hmm. 
But, you know, uh, pesticides are applied to all kinds of crops. Uh, I worked with uh, a woman who, when we were doing our PCB studies, we asked her to give a breast milk sample because she was a vegetarian. Uh, she was uh, nursing a, a child. And we thought, well, this would be good because her PCB level should be very low. Well, we tested it. Her PCB level was low. Her pesticide DDT kind of compounds level was sky high. Wow. It freaked her out. So the question is, what about, what's on your broccoli? What's on your peaches and pears? Uh, pesticide residues are everywhere. We haven't focused as much on individual pesticides because there's so many of them. But, you know, I've been recently involved in looking at uh, glyphosate, the active ingredient in Roundup. It turns out that there's glyphosate residues in beer, in wine. Uh, it's primarily found in cereals and pasta because fields growing wheat are sprayed with Roundup and there's residual glycoside there. Now, uh, how dangerous that is, Do we, we don't really know, but there's certainly evidence uh, Roundup and glyphosate have been rated as probable human carcinogens by the International Agency for Research on Cancer. And again, you can't eat a slice of bread without getting a little bit of glyphosate. Now, at what level does it cause disease? That's the debate. Uh, we have good evidence that very high exposure causes disease, but is the background level that we have in our normal food supply dangerous? I suspect uh, it is, uh, but I think the evidence that it is is, is lacking. So there always needs to be more research. But the history of our identifying dangers and then doing something about it is not encouraging. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 those of us that have laboratories and study human populations, we publish our papers in scientific journals. They usually don't get picked up by the press. And, uh, you know, it, it's frustrating because yeah. there's so much more information available than the general public ever has a chance to learn about. That's fascinating because to a lay person, um, I might find myself ranting, well, these studies will never happen because where would they get funding? When in reality, in many cases, some really crucial um, studies are being fun are being are happening like the work you're doing but then the next level is you get the funding you do the study you find these essential um, information that everyone should know but it, it's almost like a form of low-level censorship if it's not picked up by some type of media outlet that the average person is just not going to encounter this so it's it's um, one thing that I guess people could do is try and find ways to do their own research to discover the type of work that you and people like you are doing because the information is clearly out there. You've just spoken authoritatively here for nearly 40 minutes. This, the, 
it's it's not speculation. The information is out there, and there are examples like like lead. And I guess to some degree, eventually the tobacco industry had to come clean to some degree. I mean, it's a pretty sordid story, but the general public is aware of what's in cigarettes now, and they know about lead in in paint and and in, in gasoline. So the the we could kind of cling to that as a possibility, but it does put a fair amount of of onus on the everyday person to 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 be more responsible as to what they consume and and what they know about what they consume and and maybe even start you know growing your own food which I don't know because I've read I've heard stories where if uh, if you're anywhere near some pl- some place that uses GMOs or pesticides or any combination of both I mean you can't avoid the wind blowing some of that towards you but you can you can grow your own food you can you can try and take steps to go back to the old kind of victory garden um, paradigm but it it does sound it doesn't sound very promising as you said but the information is out there and to me that's the that's what I'd prefer to focus on because it's not that these studies don't exist they're just not well enough known and that's I, correct so I really that's actually correct so but I think agree. most scientists are reluctant to sort of go public with their results. Why is that? Uh, I don't know quite why, but it, you know, it it sounds like you're tooting your own horn. Oh my goodness! Uh, no. And you know, some of the high-powered universities have very active press offices, and they get articles published in various newspapers and so forth. And a lot of times, those are not very important discoveries that that make the press, whereas uh, a lot of very good scientists are just reluctant to uh, have their results presented in the press. Uh, And, you know, another reason for my pessimism, go back to smoking, it's a good case in point. The evidence that smoking causes lung cancer was definitively shown by the Nazis in the 30s. In the U.S., no attention to that was ever given until the 60s when the Surgeon General uh, issued his report on smoking and lung cancer. And the problem was that all the doctors, all the people at the National Cancer Institute, everyone was smoking, and they didn't want to face the fact that they were also dying of lung cancer. So Mm -hmm. there's a resistance uh, to taking away things that we uh, like, uh, whether it's plastics or uh, PCBs and animal fats. Uh, and it does take time for governments to become aware and then regulate exposures, as they've done very well for lead, uh, yeah. but not for many other things. Yeah, I, I would the, the track record of human beings separating that from the institutions they may work for the track record of human beings um looking themselves in the mirror and say i should change my diet or i should quit smoking or i should check what's in these hair care products to make sure that they're safe particularly if it's a pregnant woman um we don't often do that there that's not something that we're taught in school that would be an excellent class to teach us some level of self-care and self-awareness absolutely what we what we ingest and and what we accept as normal and i just hope that conversations like this is is what could move us in that direction because like i said when i've heard you 
on different podcasts, I, I immediately wanted to reach out because I just said, this man is a font of information that is really hard to find. So, I mean, we need to wrap up here, but I just want to say thank you, first of all, for the work you do, but also for so clearly explaining it in a way that someone doesn't need a, a PhD to understand what you're talking about. And I really, to, to be radically honest, I hope you set some alarms off in people's minds that when they hear it, that they're genuinely worried right now, not in a way of freaking out and doing nothing, but in a way of saying, hey, what's going on with me? What's going on with my kids? And what can I do to, to, to change this situation? Because we need some sort, sort of mass movement here. Absolutely, and individuals do have the possibility of making changes in their personal behavior that will reduce their exposures to these dangerous chemicals. Yeah, and that could be a powerful first step. So thank you for what you do. Thank you for taking time and talking to me. And um, if is there any way that you, anything you want to offer to the listeners that, to learn more about you? I certainly will put that in the show notes. I'll, I'll ask you off the air to send me some information to put in the show notes, but is there anything that listeners, anywhere they can go to find out more about you and the work that you're doing? Well, uh, my university website certainly has a lot of information. Uh, I'm quite happy to answer people's questions if they email me at dcarpenter.albany.edu. Okay. And uh, it's an important issue and the public needs to be informed. I'll be right back with my story of the week right after this word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z here asking you to become a paid subscriber to Postwoke. This is my Substack where I produce daily content, uh, articles, posts, and podcasts. And some of it is exclusively for paid subscribers. And also paid subscribers are the ones who are able to comment on such posts. So for just $5 a month, less than 17 cents a day, you get access to all of this. And you also are offering essential support for a project that I want to keep going and growing. So I thank you in advance for that. In the meantime, please feel free to peruse the show notes to find a link for the project that I've been running for nearly six years, a one-man mission to help homeless women on the streets of New York City. Also in the show notes, you will find a link to purchase a really cool post-woke t-shirt to let the world know what your favorite podcast is. And one more thing in the show notes is a link to my NFT photography collection in case you're interested in purchasing a non-fungible token. So I thank you for your time and for checking out all those links. And please, please consider becoming a paid subscriber. It makes a huge difference. I thank you in advance and let's get back to the show. I'm going to keep the story really brief this week. And I have, if you've listened to my podcast regularly now, 41 episodes in, you know all about this ritzy health club that I worked in that was quite a character-filled environment. Well, while I had that job, I had a very regular client named, named Liz. And we trained so often that we were kind of connected with each other. So when she went to law school and missed some time in the gym, a friend came up to me and asked, where's Lisbon? To which I immediately replied, Portugal. And I felt pretty damn good about myself too. So reminder, when you're around me, you better keep your guard up.